This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how science fiction, horror, fantasy, and comics help us explore our humanity. Welcome to this week on Sci-Fi Talk, recapping this week's podcast episodes. The week kicks off with author Ben Crane and illustrator Mimi Alves talking about their new YA graphic novel about young people correcting a bad first contact event. Our goal was to make something that uh, kids could could read, you know in the, the middle grade, middle school age range that they could read and get something from, uh, but that parents could also uh, find find something to enjoy there as well. And it's called Cosmic Cadets, and issue one is out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it will be out by the time this runs. Mimi, as far as the look, I guess you talked to Ben and you kind of, uh, or did he give you some freedom to kind of create these characters on your own it's what they look like i got so much freedom i honestly wish he told me more <laughs> um, uh yeah no i designed the characters designed the 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 world the ecology of everything uh the technology level um it was a lot of fun um and i got to look at a lot of interesting weird plants and try to like figure out how to incorporate that into this into the environment yeah they're on an alien planet and and, and it's obviously something we haven't seen before so that's world building is not always easy i know that from talking to people uh in the writing and the and the and the, especially for a graphic novel or a graphic comic as far as uh the uniforms it looked like kind of a retro feel to them a little yeah, there's definitely, I was, you look at most like sci-fi stuff, they, they tend to have like uniforms of different sorts and I was trying to like take in inspirations from different places to, to come up with something that would feel like both its own thing but also fit in that genre. It's sort of sort of a mix of like classic Star Trek and then the um, the Ron Moore Battlestar Galactica reboot. Uh, there's definitely some of that in the the uniform design and the ship design as well. Yeah, yeah I saw that some of the corridors look a little familiar, but but still but still its own thing. So I, I appreciated that. Ben, this is issue one, so this is obviously a longer story. I guess did you plan this all out ahead of time so that you knew where you were going? like from the first issue all the way to the end, whenever that might be? Uh, no, I, <laughs> the, the short answer is no. Um, our goal with this is, is to create, um, much like Star Trek, uh, where uh, the original pitch that Roddenberry sold that show on was whatever sets on the back lot aren't being used this week, I'll go there and I'll set a story there. Our goal with cadets or, or cosmic cadets is to create a series of almost standalone, you know, very episodic books where each one tells a complete story in itself. And together there, there's character growth and, and world development across them. But we want each of them to be able to stand alone. And especially with this first one, you never know how many books you're going to get. You never know if yeah. you're just going to get the one or if you're going to get a dozen. And so we really, really wanted this to be a complete finished story, which introduces a conflict, there is character growth, and then the conflict is resolved. So that if this is all that we ever get the chance to do, 
then it, it feels satisfying and complete. And if we get the chance to do more, which um, we're actually working on book two right now, yeah. uh, Mimi is in the process of drawing it between Very all of these interviews we're doing. Oh, cool. Very cool. Uh, so however many books we get to make, we, we will tell that many stories. Uh, but oh, I don't great. have a, a grand overarching plan, no. Might be the best thing is just to kind of see where the journey takes you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the main characters, and you know, he he misses a, a field trip. He really wanted to go on the planet, and he misses the shuttle. And mm -hmm. the, what I little I saw, I, I I'm sure I hope he 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 hitched, did get a ride down <laughs> there to, to join in the adventures. But apparently, the kids are kind of left on their own too. They kind of have to figure out their own problems because. Shall we say the parents are occupied? Uh, yeah, yeah, the parents are occupied. So the the setting of this book it's it's on a uh, a ship. Uh, humanity has achieved faster than light travel. We are exploring the galaxy, and so these books follow a ship, the ESS Kansu, as it explores the galaxy. Uh, meets new aliens and spreads diplomacy and, and goodwill throughout the universe. There is more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Trek Tuesday had author Alan Dean Foster talking about his work including the little-known Star Wars sequel to A New Hope, Splinter in a Mind's Eye. You've done a lot of novelizations of, uh, of films and things like that. Um, you know, Alien comes to mind. Uh, I believe uh, some of the Star Wars. Uh, uh, you, also did, you also did an original Star Wars story called Splinter in the Mind's Eye. Uh, what was the process of, of of that working with like established characters and trying to uh, sort of fit to the, the constraints that Gate gave you, as opposed to creating your own character? It was it was fun. I had no problem. I think when you if you love reading or you love movies, uh, when you go to movies or you read books, you always tend to add things that you'd like to see, whether it's more of a favorite character or uh, a background that's not developed too well in the story, and so you kind of invent it for yourself. Uh, that's what you do essentially when you're doing a tie-in or a novelization. Uh, George Lucas, for whom I did the book version of Star Wars and the sequel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, uh, was very it, the easiest person in the world to work with. He said, I want, I want a sequel book, use these characters, go write the book. He made two small changes in the finished manuscript, and that was it. Uh, I was left alone to do it, and uh, uh, there was only one stricture that was put on me in writing the book. At the time that I wrote Splinter, Star Wars had not yet been released. No one knew, as no one does, if the film would be successful or moderately successful or a flop. So George, who always thinks ahead, wanted to be able, in the event that the film was a moderate success, to be able to make a sequel film, if necessary, utilizing a lot of the material, props, backgrounds, and so forth, from the first film. So I was enjoined from doing things like large-scale space battles in the book, for example, and I had to write the book with the idea in mind that it might be filmed someday on a low budget, which is why it all takes place on a fog-shrouded planet, for example, that eliminates the need for expensive backgrounds. It was an interesting way to approach the book, so it has a little more of an intimate feel than it might have had otherwise. Most authors, when they write something, their budget doesn't really come into it but with something like this it was almost like writing a, a novel um, to 
to be a film and you know you have you're writing to a budget as opposed to having your imagination totally turned loose that's right uh, there, there was that restriction on it uh, but that's all right it didn't bother me it was it was fun to do it that way I always thought it would have made a really nice movie for TV and we, were, we were hoping that that was was going to be the uh, the Star Wars sequel before you know Empire you know came fleshed out but yeah it was uh, it received a lot of attention at the time and did very well for you you know I was very happy with the book sure it would have been nice to see it as a movie but George you know he was able to do whatever he wanted and he did what he wanted and he should it's, it's his story it's his universe uh, one interesting sidelight about that the cover to Splinter the Mind's Eye if you'll notice uh, among the other things that had not been locked down was the right to use the likenesses of Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill so you will note that the characters of Princess Leia and, and Luke are seen from behind so that you don't have to see their faces so I was not the only one who had restrictions I had restrictions put on how I could do the story and obviously Ralph McQuarrie who did the cover had certain restrictions he had to hew to in doing the cover painting the novel too and I think what makes such a great collectible is the fact that Macquarie did the cover uh, which I don't believe he did too many of them I think that's the only one he's ever done he did do the original cover for the first printing of the paperback of Star Wars mm -hmm. which is actually a piece of the original what was going to be original I believe advertising art mm -hmm. uh, was at least a conceptual painting anyway and when the movie came out they went to a 20th century Fox more publicity oriented more movie oriented uh, cover for the book for all the subsequent printings but that original one is is really kind of fun to see Ralph's a great painter you know oh, yeah. and, and his stuff is, is is marvelous to see Absolutely. out of all the novelizations you've done do you have a favorite I'm very partial to to alien it was written under difficult personal circumstances and it was a very intense piece of writing it had to be done very quickly and I really did nothing else but live that book for a number of weeks and because it is such a dark piece uh, it, it was it was a very intense uh, very intense time for me but I'm very proud of the way it turned out uh, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Dark Star which is a very early novelization because it was so difficult it's basically about four guys sitting around in a spaceship talking about how bored they are <laughs> or three guys and one dead guy <laughs> that was hard to get a novel out of there is more sci-fi talk so stay tuned director Craig Singer along with stars Augie Duke and Michael Reed to discuss this film 645. So for all of you, and you know, Craig can kick us off and then Augie. Basically, the way I see it is the relationship really is the core of this film. Speak to that, developing that relationship during the course of the movie. Well, I was just enjoying how much you were saying you love the film. I would like you should interview yourself so we could just listen to you talk about how much you love it. Um, <laughs> I, I look at it as a romance. It's kind of a romance where it's like a shaggy dog story where things go from bad to worse. And in this case, they, they go terribly awry for young Bobby and Jules on the island of Bog Grove. So I think it would have been easy to, to, to deliver the cheap thrills. And I think we wanted to elevate the material as best we could collectively. We, we did a lot of rewriting uh, internally and on the day to try to keep it a little bit sharper and smarter than than the average uh, time loop film, which has become quite fashionable lately and kind of sort of a cottage industry. When we wrote originally the 645, there were, really there hadn't been this proliferation of time loop films, and subsequently there's been a lot. So we not only had to be different and differentiate ourselves tonally, 
but we had the challenge of, uh, you know, facing the day that repeats without it becoming too monotonous and repetitive. So, you know, it's all about the acting, the performances that, that get the credit there. Well, we also wanted the relationship to be authentically real and because we are real life partners, I think in that, in that direction, you know, so that yeah. we yeah. wanted to be real as any relationship could be. Michael, wow, that is quite a journey for this character for you. Uh, I mean, talking about an arc. Oof, really? Yeah, thank you. It's, it was uh, definitely, this was one of my favorite roles by far uh, that I've worked on. It gave me the challenges. I worked with the crew that, that and cast that I wanted to. And getting to share this deep relationship, this kind of complex, dirty relationship on, on screen with my real life partner was amazing because you don't need to find in some stranger that you're working meeting, right? So there's just so many levels already with us. And uh, I'm sure that was a load off of Craig's mind also that he didn't have to uh, pussyfoot around it's things and elements. It was already there. Because I knew individually I was crazy about them as people and we'd become quite friendly putting this film together. And I knew as a couple, they work, obviously there's chemistry, but that always doesn't naturally translate to the, to the screen. And while individually I knew how talented they were, it was a little bit of a a gamble because once you get on set and you're you're there on the day, you, you, it it could have gone differently. Yeah. So we we're really fortunate that their chemistry it really translated from from personal to professional. Yeah, it could have gone terribly. It, yes, <laughs> actually, you're right, Craig. Absolutely, could have gone totally the opposite. We could have butted heads depending on the relationship you're in. Things could have been different, complicated that didn't need to be because of that relationship. So yeah, we were on the the good spectrum side. Of the but the thing. thing is, we were allowed to butt heads though in this relationship because it wasn't like this new romantic sort of relationship that's new. It's like we've been together, so the history was there. So in a way, butting heads sort of good if we did on set. Yeah. You know, it's a good point, Augie. To round out the week, from San Diego Comic Con, Greg Belanti talks about bringing Supergirl to the small screen. We try and make everyone different from the other ones. Uh, obviously you learn a lot of things. You learn about, I think, just structurally, and you learn about what you think you can pull off with action or visual effects, and, and how to blend the stories, and how to have the, the action has to sort of be its own emotional storyline, in the sense of it has to tell you something, it can't just be action for action's sake. So you learn lessons, but we also try and make each one different. You know, So this show, if you take this, and the way to do that for me is, like, what is the show without the superpowers? You know, When you take the, the S away, what is it? about you know and uh, in this instance we have an adult sibling female sibling relationship we have a young uh, you have a workplace sort of comedy if you will uh, you know and, and a young woman trying to figure out her way in the world and find you know discover what her story is you know and what she's meant to be uh, and then you have uh, you know you have we have aliens in this which we don't have on the other shows so we have that whole sort of uh, you know pathway into sort of an intergalactic kind of element to the storytelling I wasn't too pleased with that Supergirl movie but however, I am pleased with the fact that the girl who played her, Helen Slater, and Dean Cain, who was television's Superman, and Lois and Clark, is playing her father. You know, I, I had worked with Dean on a small movie I did back in, like, 1999, so I knew him a little bit, so I asked him. And then uh, Helen Slater, we sent the script to him, we said, you know, we really can't imagine anybody else on the show but you, and obviously we'd have... Um, We'd really like to be able to tell that backstory, but also tell about your life in the present, too. So you'll be seeing more. 
You know, you're always looking for, I think, just that, if, if you close your eyes, and it's it's never a look or a thing, because a lot of times, you know, Grant didn't have Barry Allen's blonde hair, and Melissa certainly isn't as naturally as blonde as the Supergirl you saw in the comic books when you were kids, so um, it really is the essence, I think, you know, and it's that warmth and that strength, at least what I was looking for, for Supergirl, was just someone that you uh, really represented the best in us, uh, that you could feel emotionally for in terms of, like, that sense of loneliness she might feel, that she's sort of, you know, here to protect this world, but not of it, you know? Uh, and and uh, she had all that optimism and that hope. I mean, I don't know if she sat at your table yet, but you can get a sense of that when you're just being around her. And uh, and then, so once that happens, you sort of go, well, if we don't cast her, we don't have, we don't, now, that was the person, you know, we can't let them go. And, uh, and, and so we didn't let her go <laughs> until we got her. So many people I know watch stuff the night of, but watch one thing that's an 8 o'clock show at 8 and then another 8 o'clock show at 9. You know, there's so many different ways. And there's so much competition anyway just to be in TV that you just really have to make the best show you can and then hope that everybody that's meant to be shows up for it. I mean, I've been against enough things with shows that I thought, oh, we're doomed, and then the show worked. Or conversely, I thought, oh, this is going to be a cakewalk, and then the other show trounces. So I, I you know, I... Um, I, I really think that that you know you, a lot of times both things can work you know if, if they make a great show which they do and we know that they do and we make a great show then I think we'll both be okay when I came on to Brothers and Sisters years ago uh, I thought it was going to but a lot of people around me were like why are you going on that show you know uh, they're, they're in trouble behind the scenes and all this stuff but I, I watched part of the pilot which we were reshooting and, and there was an incredible relationship between Calista Flockhart and Sally Field and I thought that was a TV show and and uh, it found an audience. And uh, a lot of people thought it would be gone in a couple episodes, and it, it wasn't. TV is so, because there's been so many different types of genres in television that whether it's law shows or cop shows where there was so many at the same time or you know remember when this little like reality came along and everyone's like oh there's too many reality shows those will go away and they're still going um, anyway so I think if you make again if you make a good show for what it is I think it's it's just um, you know I grew up watching shows in the, in the 70s and 80s and there were so many great action adventure shows you know and, and I really think of these things yeah there have superheroes in them, but they're, they're action-adventure shows, you know, and uh, they've got drama and they've got relationships, but, you know, it's supposed to be a fun ride. That is episode 12 of This Week on Sci-Fi Talk. You can subscribe to Sci-Fi Talk wherever you get your podcasts or at Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.